At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. You know, I think that it really has to do with adaptability. It's a dynamic environment. And to be a high performer, you have to be able to adapt. And I'm not just talking about the maneuver. I'm talking about mentally, emotionally, when things shift. Let's say you just totally screwed up something on your check ride and you know you busted. You need to put that away and you need to move on. And if you can't do that, the ones that could not do that and just carry that garbage with them the whole flight, inevitably just created more garbage for the flight, right? Yeah. So, because what's done is done. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. One of the greatest tactics an organization can employ to ensure sustained success is to craft the mystery of choosing strong leaders. Strong leaders make the difference in many measures of success. Conversely, poor leaders have a toxic impact on people and results. But how do we know what makes a strong leader? And what can we do to work on strengthening that muscle? Being a successful leader in unprecedented times often comes down to being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Leadership isn't about some prescribed set of actions. It isn't about a plan that you execute. Your job as a leader is to work from that moment of ambiguity and clarity, sharpen that image, and move that across your team. Leaders always have a mindset of success. That's the destination you train to. That's the destination you build your plan around. That's the destination that everything you do and center your people should be built around doing. Success. Leaders also know what they can control, and they understand what they can't control. And they're also vulnerable which can sometimes be the most challenging trait they take on. Today, I'm talking with an incredible leader who's going to help us understand what she believes makes up strong leadership and how she believes you can work to get there. Tammy Barlett is a mindset and performance expert who specializes in the art of perseverance. As a retired lieutenant colonel and fighter pilot who faced many challenges herself, she takes lessons learned from the high-performance cockpit and relates them to challenges of life. Tammy served in the U.S. Air Force for over 20 years, flying multiple aircrafts, accumulating more than 3,000 total flying hours and over 1,500 hours of combat support time, assisting and protecting troops on the ground in both Iraq and Afghanistan. I feel really lucky to have her on the show today to talk about lessons she's learned through her time as a fighter pilot and ways we can work to become stronger mentally to ultimately evolve into better leaders. Tammy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
So I feel like I would be doing my audience a disservice if I had a former fighter pilot on the show and I didn't ask you your opinion of the most recent Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick. So as, as someone who has obviously light years more experience than probably most of the people listening, what was your thought on, on the most recent movie? I loved it. I thought it was great. I mean, yeah, there's some areas that are could maybe could have been improved, but I mean, isn't that the case with anything? And some areas that were like, oh, I don't think that's very realistic, but it's a movie for movie's sake, right? And it highlights some really good things, you know? So I, I thought it was awesome and my my kids loved it. So that was even better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my kids did, did too. My eight-year-old loved it. And when we saw it in the theaters, I think we both of our palms were sweating because I felt like you were just fully immersed and just just putting you right into the into the cockpit seeing these things is is that very i mean is the experiences that we saw there is that is that pretty pretty analogous to what you're kind of seeing or experiencing when you're up in the sky oh i mean yeah some of it i mean it's it's pretty aggressive and it can be pretty sweaty and dynamic and i think a lot of the scenes were they had Tom Cruise and actually had the G forces. You could see it mm -hmm. on his face, and that's that's real. It's it's pretty aggressive. So, I want to say about a year ago, I had Dave Burke on the show, who's a former Top Gun aviator. Um, he he was in the Marine, a Marine Corps aviator. Um, he flew the F twenty two, F thirty five, amongst others, and he he told me that seeing the first Top Gun, once he saw it, he knew immediately what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted he wanted to be he wanted to be a fighter pilot. Do you have a moment that you remember where you said, "You know what? This is exactly what I want to do?" I wish I could say yes, but I don't. I mean, when I saw that movie, I I hate to say this cuz sometimes this is difficult for people cuz you know, I grew up believing I could be whatever I wanted to be. I, I really really did. But there is something to be said about seeing as believing. And, you know, the women in that movie were not fighter pilots. And I didn't even, I had never met a pilot in my life, let alone a female pilot or a fighter pilot. So I didn't have one of those moments. My, my progression really came with a desire to serve my country combined with just an adventurous spirit. You know, I was a gymnast, a tree climber, roller coaster kid, that kind of stuff. And when I went to serve my country, Air Force ROTC, the first question they always ask is, do you want to be a pilot? And I thought, well, I never thought about that. And then they said, well, oh, wait, you're ineligible. You had knee surgery. And so when I went to field training, which is like the ROTC version of boot camp, I was at Lackland for four weeks in the summer. We had a career day and there was a 200 cadets. There was a panel of officers and there was one pilot. And he just so happened to look right at me and ask the, out to the crowd, are you going to be a pilot? And I said to him, I can't. I said I had knee surgery. And he looked at me and he said, you know, there's pretty much a waiver for everything. And that's truly where it all began. I went back to the detachment. I said, I want to look at becoming a pilot. And they did some research and they discovered I was eligible the whole time medically. That was not a hindering factor, the knee surgery. And so I took the tests, I passed them all, I got a pilot slot and it just kept going from there. Was there anybody, I mean, beyond, uh, beyond the person who looked at you and, and said, are you going to be a pilot? 
obviously that had to be powerful for you, but was there someone that you, as you went through this process that you looked up to a mentor and and maybe even a female mentor, because like you mentioned in, in the original Top Gun, there wasn't a female aviator in the most recent one there was, and I could see that absolutely creating a whole generation of female fighter pilots in the future. But was there somebody you looked at and said, I want to be like that? Yeah, there, there was, I wouldn't say it was one set person, but I think what happened was as someone in college and pilot training, I felt like accepted with, with all the bros, if you will, like just one of them. And it was awesome. And I, I had like, I'd listened to them and their, their dreams. And, you know, a lot of them wanted to be pilots since they were three. And we, I'd learn a lot from them. And then when, when I was in pilot training, there was a few women in front of me, particularly Melissa May, Melissa Shock May was in front of me in pilot training and she had tracked to the T-38, which was the fighter track. And then Rochelle Lex Kimbrell was also in front of me. And I remember, I mean, at the time it seemed like they were forever in front of me. Like, wow, they're so far ahead of me. The truth is they were maybe six, six months, 10 months. I don't know, maybe. And, uh, I would absolutely look up to them and talk to them and ask their advice whenever I could. I didn't always have the opportunity because pilot training is very busy, but absolutely. And I think that sometimes those people that are just a couple steps ahead of you are easier to go. Yeah, I can do that. I think looking up to people and seeing them accomplish things is, is one important aspect to being able to put yourself in those shoes and say, yeah, I can do that. I think another is kind of building on inflection points throughout your career that you can say, okay, I made it to this point. Now I need to not need to push and get to that next level. Can you think of a couple inflection points that you feel like really got you to where you were and, and also where you are now, even beyond being a pilot? Yeah, I th- I think that the first major point was probably getting selected for the T thirty eight track, the fighter track. Um, that was a def- that was definitely a shift and a moment where I thought, yeah, I can do this. I really can do this because we I, I don't care what gender you are, what race you are. We all have self doubt, and how much we share that with others is personal mm-hmm. and different for everyone. But we all have it, and that was a moment where I thought, yeah, I can do this. And, and I loved it. I, I absolutely loved formation. That was my favorite thing ever to do. And so that was really a shift. And I would say, you know, that, that probably is it. And I ended up after I graduated pilot training, I didn't go right into fighters. I was selected as a T-37 instructor pilot, which is the basic trainer. So it's the first that at the time was the first jet that the students would fly in UPT. It was a two engine, low wing aerobatic jet, um, did spins, stalls, air, you know, formation, all that. And I taught people how to do that for three years. And it was, it was awesome. I loved it. And then at the end of that is when I got selected to f- go fly the A-10. And the shift with, I, I would say a point there was there was a time where I was struggling as a as a instructor pilot in my first assignment, wondering if I, in fact, I could be a fighter pilot. Um, and I'm talking about the end result of what a fighter pilot does, you know, mm-hmm. ultimately it's going to, you're, you're going to kill people if your job is needed. So this was something that I, I really believed that I needed a process through. So flying the jet was, that's fun for my ego, but it's not about that. It's about the job and the mission. 
And so I took my time because I had some because I was still kind of waiting to move on to that next assignment because I was actually what I was doing at the point that point was kind of putting a list of which fighter did I want in which order. And so as I'm doing this, I met with a chaplain, I met with pilots and the most impactful moment was when I was speaking with an A-10 pilot and I said to them, I don't know about the A-10 specifically because it's really low. It's right down in there. And I mean, I might actually see who I'm attacking. And the pilot looked at me and they said, you know, but you're also going to see who you're defending. And that's all I needed. That's all I needed. I think we all need to define our role and what, what, you know, we see as our purpose. And I have always been more of a defender and that who can go on the attack when I need to, but it's more in a defense role. I mean, even in soccer, I played soccer for 10 years and I was a defender and I, I loved it. I didn't have to be the goal scorer. I knew there were people out there who could do that. So when they said that to me, that's all that it was done. I said, I want, I want to go fly the A-10. That's very cool. And we could probably have a whole, whole other conversation about soccer for hours and hours. Cause I played my, I played in college. I played professionally a little bit. So soccer is a big passion of mine, but we'll, we'll leave that on the back burner for right now. You mentioned the A-10 a couple of times. Why don't you uh, tell our listeners who aren't as familiar with the A-10, uh, the type of, the type of jet it is and kind of its role. Okay. Yeah. It's a single seat attack aircraft. And its primary role is to defend our troops on the ground. So it's built, actually, the entire aircraft is built around a 30 millimeter gun that holds 1,150 rounds of 30 millimeter. Okay. So, I mean, it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty lethal jet um, to, be, to be defending. So I can see, I can absolutely see why you, you'd grapple with, with what that outcome is. Did you ever have a moment in in the cockpit where, whether it was in the A-10 or any other jet that you were in, where things weren't really going according to plan and you had to maybe go a little bit off script or kind of rethink what, what you were going to do to kind of get things back on track to to accomplish your mission? I mean, there there's always moments like that. I mean, because no, no flight ever goes perfectly. And when you ask that question, there's kind of two areas I think of it. There's emergencies with the aircraft that I absolutely had those and that mm-hmm. shifted what we had to do. And then there's kind of the, when it was, when you're employing the, the, the aircraft as a weapon. Yep. And I would say for sure that I had plenty of emergencies and it definitely takes, I definitely relied on my training and because the training is so robust and so thorough, I really think it gives us a really good foundation to kind of fall back and, and you don't think much of it. Yeah. The, 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 the flight didn't go as planned, but we accomplished, you know, what we needed to, we got home safely when it comes to employing in wartime. I actually didn't fly the A-10 in combat. I flew it in Korea, which at the, you know, it's, it's considered combat sorties when you fly up on the demilitarized zone up on the border there. Um, but then I had cervical spine reconstruction in 2006 and I transitioned to flying the MQ one predator. And there were definitely moments that employing weapons and it didn't go as planned. 
the weapon didn't strike exactly where we expected it to, or, and, you know, maybe we got one target and not two, and now we're chasing the second and you're having to adjust. So absolutely. And you, that's just part of it that you have to expect those contingencies. I've been reading a book recently called um, do hard things. And, and the whole premise of the book is to get beyond just bullying through things, getting your head. Down. I, I, for my entire life, um, naively would, I mean, you're, you're an athlete as well. Like you get injured and you say, I'll just push through the pain or I, I do this. I'll just, I'll, I'll just push through and figure it out. And we don't complain about it. And we think kind of that's toughness. And it's the whole idea is to kind of reframe that to make sure that really you're dealing with it and navigating the internals. So externally, everything is, is kind of together. Um, and where I'm going with this is uh, when you s get into a situation that is kind of extemporaneous to whatever you're, you're planning, what preparation, not just, not just mission oriented preparation, but what preparation are you doing to get your mind ready for those situations? Cause we're all going to face them. I mean, obviously the 1%, less than 1% are going to face them in fighter fighter jets, but we're all going to face situations, whether it's in our work and our personal life, where things aren't going to go according to plan. And we ultimately have to navigate that, right? So what do you do right. to kind of strengthen your mind? Yeah, I think, first of all, it's significant to, you know, there's the preparation piece of it. Mm -hmm. And kind of the what I like, I mean, I think that expectation management is very important. So what is your expectation? And does it match? And I'm not talking about a goal. I'm talking about, you know, how do you think it's going to go? And is there, are, is there part of you that's expecting that if it goes wrong, how, you know, thinking about how are you going to react or actually respond would be the word, because that's the second piece of this is when something doesn't go right, are you reacting or are you responding? And it's important that you're not just being reactive. I think, I think that's been a, a major player in my success is not being that knee jerk reactive person and kind of pausing when there's time there's there, obviously are there's moments when you think about flying, there's no time to pause. <laughs> but in most scenarios, there is a moment where you can breathe and gather yourself before you let your emotions take control. Cause I think one of the significant pieces of this is, is not letting your emotions take over. There's a time when your head should lead. There's a time when your heart should lead and you need to know the difference. Yeah. I think one of the big aha moments that I really had was cause I, I, I don't, I don't struggle with, with the robotic process of things. It's just allowing myself to understand that you actually, you do have to process those emotions at some point, right? You don't have to do Absolutely. it in the moment, but at some point you have to process. One of the things that, that I struggle with, and, and I would imagine a lot of people do, and I'm, I'm curious to get your take here. Maybe you didn't struggle with this in the military because you are you are working, or maybe you did, but you are working with um, the best of the best in those situations. But when you do when you do the work to get yourself mentally focused and you're getting ready to to make those decisions and you're navigating things so well and you're prepared, but you're working in an environment or working on a team maybe with somebody who doesn't, and <laughs> and that kind of hinders it. How? how would you describe some of the best ways to navigate those situations? Cause I struggle with that. I think a lot of us struggle with that where you don't want to let the team down. So you're doing, you're doing as much work as you can to make sure you're ready for anything. But then there's, there's someone on the team that maybe drops the ball and, and isn't doing that same work. So how do you deal with those situations? 
Well, first I always start by giving grace and that, that comes in the pause, but yeah, I think it's important that we try and understand where they're coming from. And I'm not talking about like, what was their life experience and all that uh-huh. stuff, but they're more like the intent. What, what are they thinking? I mean, that brings me back to when people ask, you know, if I've ever been, you know, discriminated against or those kind of stories. And, and of course, yes, but the idea is what was the intent? Was it, did they not mean to do it or were they intentionally doing it? And I think, can you always figure it out? No, but you have someone on your team who's doing something that's not really in step with you, or maybe they don't work as hard as you, you know, what is their goal? Are they, are they trying to sabotage the team? Are they just, do they have a different mindset around like how, how hard they work? Um, and this also, it reminds me of a story when I was going through training yet again, cause you know, you go through training every time you switch airplanes and I was going to teach in the T-38 as my last assignment in the air force. And I was going through that training. So it was a bunch of already pilots who were learning how to teach again in the T-38 and we were about to take a test and I was stressing out and cause that's just who I am. I, I will call my, I will clearly, I'll tell anyone I'm a pinger. I ping off the walls. That's, that's how I operate <laughs> at my absolute best. And until I learned that, I kind of thought there was something wrong, but it's okay. It's just how I do things. And there was a guy in my class who was not a pinger. He was very chill. That's how he operated. Well, he looked at me and he said, man, I would hate to be one of your students. And I just thought, what? And then I, you know, I didn't react. I processed what he was saying and kind of thought about why he would be saying that. And I understand why he, he said it, but the concept of what the point I'm getting at is that where I hold the expectations for myself and where I hold the expectations for those around me are different. I think they need to line up with everyone's skill levels. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I think, um, I think knowing where your strengths are, like you saying, or knowing what your personality leans towards, you, you're a pinger. You, you, like you said, you ping off the walls. You're probably going a million miles an hour until you don't have to. Um, <laughs> understanding that about yourself, I think, is important. I think that's that's part of doing that work. I think in, in office dynamics, I think even during the pandemic is a great example where everybody had things going on. And I think mm-hmm. we, it became, it became more apparent, right? Because we were opening up into, into our houses, into our lives. We have kids, we're, we're navigating daily life while and a pandemic while at the same time working. And I think that was a really, to me, it was, it was a good opportunity for me to kind of rethink how I went about things in those dynamics. And like you said, grace is to me, I'm glad you started off with it because it, it absolutely is the biggest thing. I used to always be the, the person that showed up to a meeting and I didn't want a small talk and I wanted to just get right into it. And if we were, if we were right on time, I had to move on to my next meeting and understanding that, you know what, I know that about myself, but other people don't operate like that. So how can I, how can I engage with other people? How can I make myself more, um, more, I, not even relatable, but I want to care about these people and I want them to know I care about them. So how can I show that in a way that, that is meaningful? And, and that's kind of how my whole approach to COVID at least was with my team. I think the, the word that you, you said there, caring is 
the big difference. Cause I used to get called out. I would walk into work. I'd go right into, you know, like so-and-so's office. And I would say, Hey, you got this. And they'd look at me and they'd turn around. Oh, Hey Tammy, good morning. Nice to see you. How are you doing today? And I'm like, Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, is that you have some people who will say, well, I shouldn't have to change who I am, to, you know, to make everybody else happy and feel good. Well, okay. I agree, but okay. Do you want to be a leader? Because if you want to be a leader, you need to show some care. No, you don't have to change your personality, mm -hmm. but you need to care about other people in a way like you haven't before. Because it, I think anytime I find myself getting angry, frustrated, annoyed, there's some thread of selfishness that's in that piece. And I can always find it. I'm like, oh, well, I'm getting annoyed because I want to move on to this or I'm getting angry. So then, you know, you pause and you go, okay let's rethink about this and, and think about it from their perspective. That's really powerful. I didn't, I've never thought about it that way before. I try to do kind of self-examination sometimes and do that, but to, to think about that way, it's, it's not only probably the selfishness, but some piece of your ego that, that gets in there that's kind of creeping out. So that's a really good way to look at it. Um, as you've worked with people, I mean, you, you've spoken at numerous events, obviously, and you've worked in, in with people on, on getting their mind mindset, like reframed and, and performing at a high level. What are some of the more common issues that you see and hear people dealing with on a regular basis? Well, hands down, the first thing that comes to mind is confidence. And I see it a lot, but I also experienced it too. I have been one of those people that I feel like I, put, I can't put the confidence out in front of me. I need to earn that right to be confident which does not always work. So how do you get around that? Well, um, when I was, I had an experience where I was in Korea and I was sitting in the vault studying and the weapons officer, the lead instructor pilot walked in and he threw out a question to the group sitting at the table and I immediately knew what it was, but I paused. And while I paused, somebody else answered and it was not correct. But had I not known the answer, I would have absolutely thought that response was correct. And I thought, wow, I need to start doing that. But I still struggled with it. Why did I, if I had a good guess, why didn't I just say it like it was the answer? Because for me, it was a struggle of um, tr being truthful and honest and having integrity. Because in, in my mind, if I said it as if it was the answer, but I kind of felt like it wasn't quite right, there was a mismatch there and I was lying because I felt everything needed to match. And I had to work on getting over that because if you look at it from the other side, as from the instructor side, you know, you see the student kind of going, well, I think that it's 75 and you're like, come on, dude, just answer, just answer with confidence. And that's where I kind of went, oh, I need to do that too, you know, because we all struggle with different things. But that was so the confidence piece absolutely is a big one. I think that's one, and, and tell me if you agree with this. I, I think that's one that has to be earned. It can't really be given, right? I mentioned yeah, that I, I I mentioned that book that I'm reading, and and one of the things he talks about is confidence. Another thing he talks about is kind of self-esteem, which kind of goes hand in hand, believing in yourself in that regard. And yeah. we, we had a whole generation of people that, and he talks about this, where they just continually would tell people, I believe in you, I believe in you, which really gives you that false sense 
of confidence and that false sense of self-esteem because you might believe in yourself, but but what's it really based on? So it's kind of, again, doing the work and really falling on your face a couple of times, knowing that, hey, I know exactly what to do here because I've done it wrong so many times and I, now I have it right and I'm confident and I have that belief in myself. Is that, is that what you find? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I was teaching at pilot training, I actually would take my own time before every UPT class started, everyone that I possibly could. And we would talk about confidence. We would talk about failure, specifically failing for the first time for many of them, because somebody who shows up at pilot training is now surrounded by someone who's just like them. They've probably rarely ever failed. They've done good at almost everything they've they've done. They're a high performer. They're probably a perfectionist. And now guess what? You're all the same. And someone has to be at the bottom. And I would tell them that someone will be at the bottom and it might be you. So if it's you, just pick yourself up and keep going. If it's not you have some understanding for those that are struggling and know that at some point it's going to be you that struggles. I think one of the most helpful things for them is I would draw a triangle on the board. And I would draw it kind of at the top of the board. I guess, you know, I would call it a pyramid. It's easier to think of it that way. This is the pyramid of pilots in the military. Where do you fall? Come put an X on the board where you guys fall. And it would inevitably be on the bottom line or, oh, below it. Like that's where it would, it would end up. And I'd say, okay, that's legit. Now, then I would take the triangle and I'd make it way bigger, all the way to the bottom of the board. And I go, remember when you're struggling that you may feel like you're at the bottom, but you've still done some amazing things and you can hang your hat on that to move yourself forward out of the failure. That's, I mean, that's a really interesting way to reframe it. I think it, it kind of shows that there's a whole big world out there that you're in. I mean, it, working in big organizations, working, especially in government, you're, you're, you're part of it and you, you could be part of a bigger piece than what you realize. I'm really curious to know, you worked with so many high performers perfectionists, especially, especially these pilots. And as you said, some of them finish at the top and some of them finish at the bottom. Can you put your finger on what the difference is in the best of the best of those 1%? You know, I think that it really has to do with adaptability. It's a dynamic environment. And to be a high performer, you have to be able to adapt. And I'm not just talking about the maneuver. I'm talking about mentally, emotionally, when things shift, let's say you just totally screwed up something on your check ride and you know, you busted, you need to put that away and you need to move on. And if you can't do that, the ones that could not do that and just carried that garbage with them, the whole flight inevitably just created more garbage for the flight. Right. Yeah. So, cause what's done is done. And I have my own story of doing that. I actually, there was a point in my check ride when I was a student in instruments, the, the check pilot at the end of the flight and the debrief looked at me and he said, yeah, he's like, I was so excited. It was Friday afternoon. You were my third check ride of the day and it was going great. And then I don't know what happened. That's what he <laughs> said. That's what he said to me. And I discovered that there was a point in the check ride that I graded myself. I failed myself on a maneuver. I'm like, well, that was it. I'm done. And I couldn't get it out of my head. And it was so distracting to me that, you know, I ultimately what happened later is I did, I did fail the check ride for some other error because I was, I was using so much of my mental energy on something that was done and gone 
that I, I did fail. So, but even if I had failed at that first initial point, I was only racking up more, more failed items on my check ride. And that was when I was a student. So it wasn't like an official check ride. It was part of pilot training, but it was an important experience. Like you said, you have to have some of these failures to understand how to get through it. I so I think football, that's one of the biggest things. I would say I had a football coach that kind of would say the same thing. And if you have a bad play, he would say, don't, don't let this bad play mess up the next 60 plays. Right. Yeah. We had so many people that would say, don't let this play mess up the next one. But when you put it into context of you have a whole game to go. And if you if you focus on this and you let it impact literally everything else, now you it's really become a failure, right? Yeah. Learn from that mistake and you can correct and like you said, uh, correct and adjust in real time, make those make those changes. And I can absolutely see how that how that could separate them for sure when they're so used to performing well and, and being at the top. Now, the question is, though, and this is where my my new business with the mental performance comes in, is that how? How yeah. do you do that? Like a lot of times people are like, you have it or you don't. And I don't believe that. I believe it can be taught. And that's where I come in. I mean, if you practice you know, your like your mental, where you are mentally before you get in that situation. I mean, think about just a scenario of, let's say you're going to go somewhere unsafe. <laughs> I don't know. You're, you're going to think through scenarios, right? Of what's going to happen and what you're going to do. And you're more prepared and capable. You can do the same thing with your mind. Like if I get into a bad space, I have a reset word. I can teach you how to use this reset word where you just take one breath. And because you've done it so many times before, your mind goes, oh, we're resetting. We're moving on. Um, but you have to have a way to do it. I'm not saying I didn't do that while I was a student or, or, you know, a pilot. That's something I've learned later on because what I discovered was a lot of people have asked me, how do you do it? And I didn't really know how I said, Oh, I just, you just do. And that's not helpful to anybody. So I've spent the last couple of years researching the hows and being able to try and train others on how to do that. That's that's really interesting because I I agree with you a hundred percent that we all have the capability to do it. It's just a it's a willingness to one want to, and then two marrying it up with the right person to to be able to help us or the right content to be able to help us to understand how we can get mentally stronger in in that in that same way. One of the things that I know a lot of us probably need mental strength on, me included. You mentioned it earlier that it's something you struggled with, um, but imposter syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. We get we get to a point where we look around and say, hey, I, I don't know if I belong here. And I've done that numerous times across my career, across athletics, et cetera. How, how have you experienced imposter syndrome and how have you navigated that? So I think that you know, our society really preaches at us that we need to be strong and independent and do things on our own. And I absolutely agree with that, but not in every scenario. I think that we're social beings and we're meant to be connected and help each other. And I think specifically for me and for others struggling with imposter syndrome, that you need to find trusted, you know, confidants, I know friends, family, it doesn't matter who it is, but somebody who, who you know, sees you and will, as you are, and they'll be honest with you in your potential. So, I mean, obviously my mom isn't going to be the best person to help me with imposter syndrome being a fighter pilot, right? <laughs> but 
of course, my mom be like, oh, you can do anything you want. Yeah, that's great. But I, you know, so my mom's great for other scenarios. In this scenario, I would find someone who knows my skill level, who knows my capabilities and is willing to tell me my weaknesses as well as my strengths so that I can go, okay, oh yeah, okay. Because I definitely had that struggle where I'm like, oh man, I, I suck. And then, you know, you go find that person and not only do they, they help push you back into maybe a realistic perspective of yourself, but they also share their experience typically. And they say, oh, that's nothing. I did blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm just, I'm normal. Like I like to feel normalized in my experiences of this imposter syndrome. And I think that, that that's been helpful to me and it's helpful to others. And usually it's a one-on-one. -on -one. It doesn't always happen in small groups because people don't want to share that stuff in small groups. But if you can talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, you'll find they'll open up a lot more and, and be a lot more helpful. I think that's really good advice. I had um, Austin Colley on who, who played in the NFL for a number of years and uh, was a wide receiver for, for Peyton Manning for a period of time with the Colts. And that's one of the things he would say is Peyton never wanted to hear what he was good at. He knew what he was good at. He wanted to know what he was struggling with. He wanted to know those blind spots so he could get those better. So you're right. Having somebody who's willing to, to tell you where you're slipping up, tell him, tell you where you're making mistakes. And then also help you figure out how to navigate those mistakes and, and get better. So you're learning from them is I would imagine a vital part of, of the growth processes with career, personal life, et cetera. Um, Absolutely. So I, yeah. I've appreciated the time today. Uh, any final thoughts that you want to leave with the audience? The only thing I would say is really that give yourself credit, you know I mean? And give yourself room to work on your, your mental space, because the thing is, is that a lot of what's going on and what we believe about ourselves, we all, we all have all heard this. It's not really an accurate picture of ourselves. So, you know, reach out to others and get that accurate picture and then do the work on the inside and working on your, your mental performance and your mindset, because it can make a significant difference in your success. I, I completely agree. One of the one of the things before we close out, one of the things the book talks about is being able to be alone with yourself is is mental strength. He he talks about how we uh, as human beings, if if there's a period of time to fill, we'll pick up our smartphone or do something, but we just can't be alone in our thoughts. And just the process of being alone with your thoughts for a period of time and navigating those actually builds mental toughness and strength more than you realize. So it's something I've been more intentional about and doing, and I think that's also something people could probably do as well to, to focus on. Tammy, thanks again so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com or backslash podcast, wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on Twitter at Chittister AB or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.